This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also down-regulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show firefighter and cancer survivor, David Leesk. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into the fire service, ice hockey, entering EMS, working in Compton during the LA riots, career fires, his cancer diagnosis, the financial impact, chemotherapy, returning to duty, mental health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you David Leesk. Enjoy. Well, David, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. I really appreciate it. Um, this is my second one that I've done, and it's guys like uh, you, and I was on uh, multiple calls with a gentleman named Scott, and I, I said it to him, and I'll tell you, I appreciate you doing this for the fire service and first responder and military community. It's really an honor to be a, a part of this. I've, I've listened to your podca- podcast, and uh your guests are just truly really amazing people, so I'm honored to be here. 
Yeah, well, again, this is about disseminating stories that need to be heard. And as people will hear, yours is definitely going to be, you know, just as valuable as the other ones that are already on there. So for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? Um, I'm originally from uh, Temecula, California. That's where my residence is. But I happen to be up in the Yosemite area for a real brief vacation. Um, but I'm originally from, uh, I live in Temecula, California. And I'm familiar with that area. A lot of the Anaheim guys I used to work with live out there. So let's start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Uh, I was born in Whittier, California, and I grew up in a city called La Mirada, just right next to Whittier. Uh, my dad was a truck driver for 20 years, and then he actually ended up owning his own carports, car parts business. And he would uh, sell car parts out of a shop for old cars like Chevys, Buick Sports, uh, all that stuff. My mom was a homemaker until I was probably, I think I was in sixth grade. Uh, and then she started to work for a physical therapist. Uh, other than that, I, I'm an only child. Um, and um, yeah, I, I grew up a, a pretty simple life um, as an only child. And people would say I was spoiled, but uh, I don't believe so. <laughs> So talk to me about what you were playing as far as sports when you were young. Because I know that there was one sport in particular that you were very passionate about. I, I Well, I started off and uh, my parents believed that I should be in every sport. So I played everything, uh, basketball, baseball, soccer, football. Um, those were like my, my main ones when I was just very young. Um, I got out of football pretty young. Basketball, I hung in there. I couldn't stand soccer. There's just too much running. And <laughs> there is. <laughs> but baseball loved it. And so I played a majority of baseball until my, my dad's Canadian. And I, I, I didn't know this, but he always wanted me to play hockey. And when I was young, he was, he was, he would tell me, ah, I want you to play hockey. I'm like, dad, that's just, I mean, California, that's a ridiculous sport. I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem right. And then I, I started playing ice hockey and I, I really enjoyed it. And like I said, my family's from Canada and, and uh, one year I went back to Canada and, and I played hockey on a frozen pond with my cousins and I was I was sold. And uh, so I came back and I was a little later start on hockey. I would say it was probably 12 when I started that. I picked up on it real quick and, and I became pretty decent. I ended up playing with a lot of um, higher caliber teams in Southern California. But Southern California at that time in the different world, um, it was we weren't as good. Um so uh, later on, as I as I grew up, I well, I, don't know, I was around fifteen or sixteen. Um, my dad decided I needed to live closer to Canada, and I, I kind of had come to the point where I played baseball a lot. I was a pitcher. I threw out my arm. My arm was sore every time I threw, and it, it got to be a, a, a grind. And it was I was probably one of those that needed surgery, but at that time they didn't have a Tommy John or anything like that, so. Um, baseball became I didn't like it because it was just too painful and so I focused all on hockey and at that point it was 100% hockey and I went up to Washington State and we lived in Tacoma and I tried out for a junior C team they're called the Ironmen and when I tried out for the team um, I didn't make it and at that point it was it was one of those points in your career where you're like all right it's it's time to figure out my adult life and the, the kid games have to stop and so at that point, I, um, I, I still played um, recreational hockey. I, I found a league in Tacoma, played there and went to high school. And at that point, I'd always wanted to be a firefighter, but I decided 
it's time to start pursuing the, the fire side. And uh, so that's, that's where I went. I've had a lot of people on here that were successful on the athletic side and it was the multi-sport element that forged their success. And I think, I forget if it's, um, was it Kobe? I think that didn't play specifically basketball till he was quite old. Yeah. Talk to me about entering uh, hockey at 12 years old. What was it that you saw that you brought to that game that allowed you to have such a quick improvement? I don't know. I think it was just a passion. When you find a passion for something, I really wasn't interested in when I was a, as a as a kid. It just didn't see none of my friends did it, and so it was one of those things where it was it was ah, no one does it. My friends play baseball. I can go play baseball, and, we, and I go to practice. I know everyone, and then I got into ice hockey. And in Southern California, a rink isn't like every block. It, at that time, it was maybe fifty to hundred miles apart. So you're playing hockey with kids you don't know, and so. Um, it was kind of hard to jump into that because you're an outsider at 12, but um, you soon become an insider and, and you, you create those bonds. And uh, hockey had that bond. It was, you're all out there together. Um, it's a team sport. There's a, there's a lot of team dynamics, like, like every sport, but it was just that, that um, I, I loved it because it was, it was very physical. It was the best shape I was ever in my life when I was, when I was in ice hockey, the, uh, I remember when I first started there, like, you stay out there for 30 seconds, you get off off the ice. And I was like, what, man? That's like nothing. But when you skate hard for 30 seconds, you're like, oh, my God, get me off of this thing. So uh, I really enjoyed the just the, the physical part of it, uh, that the cardiovascular is just a great sport and the team dynamics. And then it was it was really neat. I got to travel a lot. Um, at that time, I wasn't in travel baseball, but hockey, I, I played up in Canada, Surrey, B.C., we went all over British Columbia. Uh, we went all over Washington and it was, it was a really neat experience. And something I thought was really unique about um, hockey when I started getting older is uh, when, when you play baseball, you just show up in, you know, your, your uniform and hockey, we would show up to get dressed in the locker room and you had your coat. My coach required us to wear a shirt and a tie. And it was like, man, this is, this is a weird dynamic, but it was, it also instilled a lot of things into me as, as I got older, it was just like almost maybe, would you say professionalism and, and uh, pride and, and stuff. So I just really like the sport and, and everything about it. So it, it really compelled me to uh, do well. And it was really hard because learning to ice skate. And then on top of that, learning how to handle a puck and, and everything, it was, it was hard, but I quickly found the spot as a defenseman. So that was more about checking and uh, not so much uh, agility. So I, I think that was my spot. I've had so many people on here that ended up being very high performers, especially tactical athletes. Um, and there's a lot of common denominator sports, wrestling, volleyball, ice hockey comes up, but never baseball. Some of them play baseball. They never say that. That was what prepared me, baseball. And, it's, and if you think about, like you said, not liking to run, there's no better sport not running than baseball or cricket where you either get to choose sunflower seeds while you're playing or you take a break and actually have tea like we do in cricket. So yeah. great games. And it's funny because in my son's school, there's a lot of arrogance amongst that particular team and the players. And I don't know why, but as far as, you know, physicality, I mean, I think that they're 
wrestlers for example i don't think people can really understand what grind is until you've you know had another human being trying to slam you into the ground and then the same with ice hockey you know i mean the the skill that you need with the puck but at the same time the physicality and the contact uh it's a pretty unique sport too and i think a good one to prepare you for a career in uniform definitely you know and, and uh, some of the things are the intimidation factors i i still remember a guy that broke my ribs on, on the ice his name was jensen Checked me on the boards, and uh, I had it out for that guy for my whole my whole career in, in uh, hockey. And it wasn't I had him out, but I'm like, I got to stay away from that guy. But I want to hit him too. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that that was uh, like you said. There's a there's a lot that goes into it. Did you ever get him? Uh, I can't tell you. For sure. I don't think I did. <laughs> <laughs> he I'll might be, be listening. <laughs> I, I was terrified of him. <laughs> All right. Well, you mentioned about always want to be a firefighter. So when you went through the school age, was that the career in mind? And if so, where did that desire come from? You know, this is going to sound corny. Um, there was a show called uh, Emergency Squad 51. And I watched that as a kid. And uh, I watched it and I was like, that's a really cool job. That and um, Adam 12. So I'm really I'm really old here. And I was like, oh, police officer, chips, uh, motorcycle cop. I like the public service aspect of it. And uh, so I watched those shows and, and there was always that, that emergency. I, I, I didn't know if that was for me because I looked at the medical side and I was, and I just didn't like it. It seemed I was, I just didn't like the medical side, but I, I watched the show and, and, and like I've said this before, that is probably one of the most realistic fire shows today um, about just showing the, the, the things that are done and, and the teamwork. So anyways, back to the story, I watched that as a kid and through my whole life, I'm, I was kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to be a firefighter or not. I think I do. The public service is what I really like. And oddly enough, when I worked at, so I worked in my skating rink. Uh, I, I didn't say this in my story, but when I was 16, I moved to Tacoma, uh, broke my jaw. And then I went back to California. My parents, I moved out when I was 16. And I moved back to California and, and my goal was I'm going to be a firefighter. I want to graduate with the kids I grew up with first. And then I want to be a firefighter in California. That's where my home was. So when I came back to California and I had to get a job because I was paying rent with these people, they said, if you pay us hundred dollars a month and teach our kids to play hockey, you can stay at, at our place for hundred dollars rent. And it was right next to the high school I went to. So done deal but I had to have a job. And so I went to work in an ice skating rink. That ice skating rink, uh, two of the gentlemen that worked there, they wanted to be firefighters. So we're at this ice skating rink and we're doing all of our stuff and we're always talking about fire stuff. And one of them went through the fire academy and he was an EMT. And the other one, it was actually the guy's brother. He went through EMT, but he had, he had never done anything. So I had all these stories about my friend that was an EMT. He, uh, he went on some pretty significant calls. He worked for an old ambulance called uh, Adams Ambulance, and they went on the Cerritos plane crash. And I don't know if people are familiar with that, but it was, it was one, a horrific event back in the 80s. I think it was 83. And he told me about it, and it was and it was one of, it was one of those things, again, where I was like, I don't know if I really want to see that kind of devastation. But as I got, as I got older, I, I just decided, you know what, I got, I got, to, I got to go to the path and uh, firefighters it and – so long story short, talking to those people started, I graduated high school and I went the fire path and I never looked back since. How was it described that made you question your ability to deal with it? Because 
you know, a lot of people will ask responders, what's the worst thing that you've seen? And it's, you know, and that's the worst thing you can ask any of us. But at the same time, it's very hard for someone to describe what we see, you know, so you give them the kind of Disneyfied cliff notes of maybe, you know, a call, but was it portrayed in a way? Because, I mean, it sounds like it was pretty colorful if it elicited that response in your mind. Yeah, so um, just, uh, and for instance, uh, my, my friend that went on the, the Cerritos plane crash when he told me about the the things that he encountered, uh, I won't describe them because it's, it's, but that was one of those things where I was like, this is something that's going to take a toll on you over time. And uh, we'll probably get into this, but uh, I ended up working in Compton for four years and I was just an EMT, wasn't the firefighter side. And I started my 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 first day, well, I'd say my first week or so, half of training was the was the LA riots and, and I was stationed in Compton. And I, I've said this uh, before to, to other people, it was some of the things I, I witnessed there were were tragic. You um you don't think a human being could do something to another human being. And and you're there and you witness it. And so um yeah, that um we could probably get more into that here in a second, but um all those things really made me question my my path into the fire service. And I don't know what made me decide to go with it. I think there was that that joke, it was like, do either one be burned or shot? And uh, I was like, eh, I don't think I want to be shot. So I'll I'll go that path. <laughs> It's an interesting insight, though, because I think a lot of us just go in naive. I know I did. And I didn't go in going, oh, can I see horrible stuff? It just didn't really. Um, it wasn't a thought that went through my mind. It was more like, am I going to be able to do this job? Am I good enough? Am I going to be able to pass these exams and, and all that kind of thing? And then you get on. And you're like, wow, OK, well, I guess I can. <laughs> but that would have been really shitty if I'd gone through all that and I couldn't. But uh, that's, that's kind of an interesting foresight to be such a young man and already be thinking about the possible mental health implications of that career. Yeah, I, I think that's actually done me well. That's been good for me because I remember taking EMT class. And when I started, um, I went to EMT in 1992. And I, I remember the teacher telling us there's a thing called gallows humor. And it's okay to have gallows humor. And, uh, and I do remember, like, there was calls where my partners and I, we, we had gallows humor. And I think it did help. <laughs> it's strangely enough, it was, it was, it was kind of sick and twisted, but for some reason, it helped you deal with it. And then at a point, it was like, no, you, you can't have gallows humor because that's just, that's not good. <laughs> and so, um, finding ways to deal with it after the fact, it has, uh, has been interesting uh, and I, I've definitely noticed it and I don't know if it's bad um, but uh, I, I do think it, at once I realized that the gallows humor was normal for a human being to to do I was I was a little more able to accept things I heard one person's one of my guests talk about it and and the kind of philosophy behind it is that when you laugh, you downregulate. So you're in that fight and flight. You've just seen some horrible stuff. That laughter is actually us just kind of bringing it down again, you know. So yeah, when you look at that, and it's the same even with infidelity. I've had another person say, you know, when 
when uh, you know you have intercourse and there's a climax, physiologically you wind down, and we all know as men, it's easy to <laughs> fall asleep soon after that. So when yeah. you look at it from a physiological point of view, it does make sense. Now you know we have to be careful who we have our gallows humor around, but it you know I would argue that at times it absolutely is an important tool for us. I agree, and and uh, you know it's just finding that fine balance, like you say, it's it's uh, one of those things. But you know as a as I've progressed through my career, I've also noticed that, um, you know, back in the day talking about it wasn't, wasn't, uh, or the right thing to do either. And, and, uh, and I was actually, I've witnessed, you know, 20, 25, 30 years of this. And when it first happened, you'd be like, I'm not talking about that. That's not manly. And then over the years of going through, um, debriefings, um, I've also noticed over time, oh, that's a good thing too. You just have to maybe embrace it a little bit. So walk me through your journey into EMS and how you found yourself in Compton right before the LA riots. So when I, when I got my ENT, um, uh, I knew I was a firefighter. I was going to be a firefighter. So I was going through a college, Rio Hondo College, and I was taking fire science and, and EMT. And there was two big companies. It was called AME and Adams. And then there's this tiny little company called Rescue One. And everyone wanted to, everyone wanted to be a uh, EMT firefighter. It was the, there was just, everyone was out there testing for EMT and, and there was no spots at AME or Adams where I wanted to work at Adams. That was South Central LA and, and they had multiple places. And, uh, there's a small company, Rescue One, and they, they ran Santa Fe Springs, which is, um, down in that area and then Compton and they did some inner facility transfers. So they weren't as popular. And, and so I, got a job at this rescue one because they weren't as popular. And uh, when I went there, I made it known that I wanted to run fire calls. And uh, I was lucky enough just through spots open and, and everything working out, I was able to get in Compton. And uh, and the other thing I was really fortunate, my partner, he's a captain with Compton Fire now, he was reserved with Compton. And so I worked, I would say three years there with a, with a guy that was just all about the fire service and, and taught me stuff. So that was a, that was a great thing for me. I actually thought I was going to be a Compton firefighter. I went through their fire Academy. I was set up for their reserve program. And so my path into the fire service, uh, I went into rescue one, worked in Compton. Like I said, the first week I, I'm, I'm out of training and all of a sudden we're, we're doing, uh, I'm, I'm going on multiple shootings and and uh everything's on fire around me and they're moving us out of our building because it's unsafe and uh it was it was just a really um weird experience but on the same token it almost made me enjoy the medical side because i was out helping people and it, it uh i got to experience things that i wasn't sure i'd be able to handle and i did experience them and i was like okay i, I can i can do this and so I enjoyed my whole time at, at Compton and, and uh, the only reason I stopped working in there is because I had to go to the fire Academy. And at that time, the um, AMR or med trans at the time was taking over ambulance companies and they took over my, my small little company and I wanted to go to the fire Academy and they said, well, you either work here full time or, or you don't have a job here. So I went and found another ambulance company that would support me through the fire academy. And uh, so I went to a place called Emergency Ambulance out in Brea and worked there for a year and went through the fire academy. And then once I got through the fire academy, um, and so I'm kind of ahead of myself here, I um, I got married really young. I was married at 19 
And uh, when I was at Rescue One working in Compton, I started working for the Orange County Fire Department at the time. They're now Orange County Fire Authority as a paid call firefighter. And so I was married when I was, uh, I was 21. My wife was 19. Uh, I started this paid call fire academy. I would say I was right around, right around 21. I think right after I got married, I started the academy. And so I started becoming a paid call firefighter and um, an EMT. And then I, I actually put myself through the fire academy. And so I spent six years with the Orange County Fire Authority and as a paid call firefighter. Um, after that, during that time, I was, it was, that was where I really found my like passion for the fire service because I was doing the EMT stuff. I was working at pay call firefighter. We would do drills on Wednesdays. We would do all the firefighter stuff. It was, it was a relatively slow station, but we were, we'd go and cover other stations throughout the county. So I got quite a bit of experience there, probably more than I should have because the paid call program at that time was a program where they staffed engineer or the whole fire engine with reserves, if you will. So we were sent on pretty critical calls with three of us with very little experience or doing things. Sometimes there's four, sometimes there's five, but I got a lot of experience that way because we were put right in the mix and uh, arguably should it have happened. I don't know. That's, that's another story to be told, but I appreciated it. And so, um, Back to to my path in the fire service. So I was doing that. I got myself through a fire academy. And then I, I decided the next path I needed to do was um, paramedic because that was just the way that it was at the time. I went to Daniel Freeman Paramedic School and uh, I did that full time. I actually had to quit my job and, and my in-laws were nice enough to uh, support us during that time, which was huge. Um I did my uh, internship with LAFD, which it was a great experience. I, I speak so highly to LAFD. They're, um, it was just a great place to work. Um, it wasn't easy. There was a lot of difficulties at that time. There was a lot of expectation. My two preceptors were, uh, I would say, some of the best in the business. My my preceptor to this day, when I talk to him, we're still friends. And he'll tell me, he's like, I've only passed like four people in my whole 30-year career. And he passed me. So it was it's kind of an honor to make it through him and, and know that I had the ability. So that was another thing that gave me that, that pride through my career is I didn't think the medical side would be my thing, but I went through paramedic school, went through a tough program, went through a tr- tough preceptor, and I was able to be successful. So I felt really good about that. So at the conclusion of paramedic school, I, I met a friend in there and he was a Gardena firefighter and I worked as a reserve for Gardena Fire. So at one point I was an EMT, I was a paid call firefighter, and I was a reserve for Gardena Fire Department. I don't I don't think I saw my wife more than two days a week with all my 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 ventures in the fire service. But at that point, I was just I was in it to win it. There was um a lot of competition. I was constantly testing and at the, for the for the first part I was failing, failing, failing and then get better and better and better. And finally you, you, you get the game and, and all of a sudden opportunities start to arise. And and that's when I finally got a job with the Santee fire department. And what year was that? Uh, September 20th, 1999. 99. Okay. So that was cause I got hired by Anaheim in 2005. And I talk about this, you know, once in a while on here, I tested against a thousand people like you. 
that were already firefighters that were already EMTs and or paramedics that had time working in ambulances, reserve firefighters. I mean, their resumes were stacked. And now yeah. fast forward to 2023, I hear from almost everyone, we can't find people to work in the fire service. So you coming from probably even a tougher time to get hired than it was for me because I was six years after you in, in California specifically. Talk to me about your perspective of, of that devolution. How have we got here? You know, it's funny. I, I My son's actually trying to be a firefighter right now, and he's working for an ambulance company in Compton right now. So I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But I remember when I said I went to Rio Hondo College, there was a, a, I was in Fire Science 101. I think it was considered intro to fire science. And uh, my first day of the class, the instructor looks at the whole class, and he's an old retired chief from L.A. County. I don't remember his name. And he's all, who do you think is going to be a firefighter here? And, you know, 90% of the class raise their hand. I'm going to be a firefighter. I look around. All people, you know, of all sorts, pretty much look like me, you know, pretty in shape, um, clean-cut kids. We're all raising our hand. And he goes, see the guy next to you? You see the guy, like, to the left of you, the right of you? She's probably not going to be a firefighter. Only one or two, you're going to be a firefighter through here. And uh, that really hit home. And like you said, um, when I when I tested, I went the furthest Sacramento to the furthest south was Chula Vista. Uh, I was considering going to Nevada, Arizona. Didn't make it that far yet, but I went out to Victorville and, and stuff. So that's that's pretty much if, if California, it's central to South California is where I was testing from the beach to the the deserts and it was like you said i'd, I'd go to long beach and there was five thousand applications they were only handing out five thousand applications you had to spend the night in a parking lot to get the application and uh so uh, to fast forward so i i'm tested with santee fire department same thing it's a little smaller department but they have a test and if i remember right it was open to a thousand applicants and it wasn't paramedic it was firefighter paramedic preferred. And I don't remember how many applied. And I honestly was driving down and, and I was like, all right, this one's practice. This isn't really going to, I'm not going to give this one. And and it's a San Diego department and they like locals and it's just, it's not going to work out for me. And but I'm, I'm going to do it. And so I, I take the test and, and uh, I go through the process and, and I lost my best friend through this because this will show you how competitive it was back then. I, uh, I have my oral interview scheduled and my, my friend's getting married on a Friday and I was in his wedding. And so I call Santee and I, was, and I said, I have to be in a wedding on Friday. Can we reschedule? Is there other days that you're doing it? They're like, nope, just one day. Sorry. I'm like, is there, is there anything I can do? They're like, you can drop out. And uh, I really struggled. Like, okay, I'm probably not going to get hired here, but I decided to tell my friend, I'm going to do my interview. I'm sorry. I'm missing your, your, your wedding. And it was still a ways out, but not my friend right now. So uh, I don't know. Was the decision right? I hope so, but uh, it's tough. So now to, to expand on your question, I've, I've worked in the fire service and I've seen like every year, it seems like less and less applicants and more and more spots. And uh, it's hard for me to comprehend because I used to look at the fire service. And when, when I looked at it, I was like, man, I just love that job. It's the camaraderie. I, I grew up with sports um, everything about it was was everything I lo I loved. It was you're the jack of all trades. When somebody has a problem, you fix it. If it's a broken water pipe, if it's a medical issue, if it's a fire, 
um, you're the jack of all trades. And, and I really like, I really like that. And so as the time progressed, it was, it was more and more like, man, people aren't, aren't, we can't find people. And then sometimes, you know, you find a couple of people, but they really don't match the um, profile of a firefighter. And it's not that they're bad people. It's just they're maybe some of them aren't physical or maybe some of them, you know, they, they didn't realize what they're getting into. There's like a lot of times I've, I've honestly ran into people who are like, man, I, I didn't know we had to get up in the middle of the night. And you're, you're like, well, yeah, that's, that's the job. And so um, I, I don't know what the, what's happened over the years to make it the way it is. Um, it, I, it's, it's a really tough one. Um, I, I can't answer that to tell you the truth. So some, one of, well, I guess a couple of my observations and you please tell me what you think of this. Um, and it's funny because when you said about the, uh, the guy not realizing he has to get up, my when I first got hired in Orange County, I was put in a very slow station and it was awful. I hate, hate not running calls. I mean, don't get me wrong, I want to sleep at night, but during the day, let's get out there, let's go, you know, go do some good. Um, so for six months, I was badgering our BC and one of the guys I got hired with didn't realize that we had to clean toilets and mop floors and and so he was his dad was i think he owned a dealership and he was like i'm i'm done i'm leaving so i managed to get his spot on a, on a busy station and that was it but that was uh god 2013 2013 yeah so um no no i'm sorry 2008 so still kind of you know when it was kind of competitive so that's kind of surprising but the reason for this podcast the reason that you and i are going to talk is that there is no question, in my opinion and yours, that this is the greatest job in you know on the planet, hands down. And everyone will say that about their profession, but I loved everything I did. But we have a problem when it comes to the work environment. And I think what is happening now is you have s- certainly the technology and it just a, a number of things have contributed in a smaller pool of candidates because you know just look at our school children these days there are some phenomenal athletes but a lot of them are you know are deconditioned whether it's obese or just not moving as much not seeing daylight as much so you've got a smaller amount to choose from but then you've also got some very intelligent minds they're like okay fire service tell me about it tell me about the work week tell me about this tell me about that tell me about the frequency of cancer for example which we're going to get to and they lay it all out and they go this doesn't sound as good as you know the movies make it sound. So I think this is the other side is that we as a profession have to finally band together and go, we've done more with less to the point where we've reached a critical mass and this is it. We have to now change the way that we support our firefighters and give them a work week that allows them to thrive because you just have to look at the stats. Suicides, overdoses, cancer, heart disease. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And it's not doom and gloom, but if we keep shoving it under a pillow and beating our chests about leather helmets and pistol grips, we're never actually going to move the needle. And one day, we're not going to have enough firefighters. And then what? Same as the law enforcement. You, you know, it's it's interesting you talk about that because the one thing I do know that um, has surprised me is because when I got in the fire service, it was like I said, a jack of all trades. We run medical aids. We run and and really, over the years, it's we run medical aids. You, you're not the firefighter you used to be. Um, and and I've seen it in my career. I would go to I go to fires a lot more than I do now. And so it's more of medical aids. And 
And that does seem to beat people down. It seems like the medical aspect of the fire service. And, uh, and it could be too, because, uh, you know, the constant abusers, uh, you, you end up going on, on calls where, where you're like, wow, this person's abusing the system there. And, and I really do believe that's part of the, the psyche that affects people where they, they deal over and over. You, you want to help people and you're like, you can't even help yourself. And I, I've seen that where it breaks people down because you're just constantly going over the same person and, and you're, you're helping a person that's abusing the system while someone that really needs us over somewhere else doesn't get that, that same care because the system is broke, if you will. Um, and so that, that is one thing that I think affected people too. And just the, the call volume, it, it changes as, as time goes on, our call volume, volume just goes more and more and more. Um, at our department, we've noticed, uh, I went from probably running 4,000 calls a year with a two-station department to now we run over 10,500. Um, so that's definitely a wear on you. And like you said, like we continue to do the same things. We, we don't really add. We just continue to do that same grind. And, and so now instead of, you know, spacing things out and, and being more effective, we just, that's a perfect example. We do less with more. I've heard that my whole career and, and it's, it's probably a time where we reevaluate that. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is the thing. If you look at statistically just what's happening in the obesity epidemic, that one piece of the pie alone, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And obviously that's going to translate into all these medical calls that we respond to. Now add in the mental health and the addiction you know, element that we've got at the moment. You know, then there's homelessness and then there's gang violence. And so it's, you know, this is how I, I've talked to a lot of the law enforcement guests. Yes, we need our officers to be in shape. There needs to be mandatory fitness requirements. There needs to be, you know, jujitsu or whatever combination wrestling so that they can actually manhandle people. You know, there's all these things on the shoulders of law enforcement community. But let's talk about why there's so much crime in America. Why is it in Compton that we have young men shooting each other over a color of their T-shirt? Why are we not talking about it? It doesn't happen in Oslo. It doesn't happen in Lisbon. You know, or not to anywhere near the magnitude that we see here. So this is the other thing is like you can't ask the first responders to keep sticking their fingers in the holes in the dams because we've only got so many fucking fingers, you know, and at some point someone's got to say we need to stop pumping water in the first place. So to me, if we're not addressing the proactive side, there's there's going to be there's going to be a failure. There's, you know, the people that are still here that just being asked to do more and more and more and then. We're seeing what we're seeing. Cancer, heart disease, suicide, overdose. So now the ones that are holding the line are getting beaten down physically and mentally and we're losing more of them. And or they're just saying, fuck it, I'm done. They're retiring early. They're transitioning out, whatever it is. And so that leaves yeah. even less people trying to plug the holes. Sure. And, you know, it's funny because over the years, it's even it used to be when you became a firefighter, the, the number one cause of death was heart attack, right? It was heart attack and and. uh and what did we do to solve that? We started eating healthy at stations. Uh, I'm very proud of my department. We have a, a, a physical a PT program. Two hours a day is dedicated to physical fitness and everyone participates. And so, so uh, I'm very proud of that part. And, and you look at my department in general and, and we're a very fit department. So it's uh, something really to be proud of. But I think like you say, as, as time progresses, we have these different things. So I think the fire service in general has done a couple of good things over, over their career. It's uh, first of all, we improved our heart health. There's, there's a lot 
better healthy eating. There's uh, but the other thing is, is fires, fires have decreased because we've addressed that there's smoke detectors. There's, there's things that we do to um, prevent fires, which, which makes it better. But now we have these other animals we're dealing with like synthetic products, um, fires with all kinds of things that we just have no idea we're exposing ourselves to, um, you know, some places physical fitness doesn't take a priority. So they, we, they're still are getting the, the heart attack. You can get a heart attack even if you're physically fit, but there's a lot of things that are as time progresses that we have to deal with and, and maybe we're not keeping up with it like we should. Well, even there's some innovation and I've, I've had a guest on a long time ago now, but when COVID hit, the um the red tape around e-med you know virtual medicine online medicine whatever the, the term is um was loosened a lot to enable people to treat others from a distance which is you know amazing in a lot of areas and what that allowed certain companies to do and i'm trying to get one to come on as a sponsor because it's something that i want to be on every episode so people hear it um is they integrate with your 911 system. So those frequent flyers whose calls are truly, you know, Alpha Bravo, they or Omega, which is the worst one, um, they are educated like, okay, we can send rescue to you. We can send an ambulance to you. Or if you would like, we can give you a virtual consultation with an ER physician. Which would you prefer? Well, all I want is my script refilled. Or all I want is make sure that my two-year-old that threw up once isn't going to die of dehydration. And so you start filtering a lot of those, which benefits everyone. The child, for example, doesn't have to go to ER and be between a drunken, you know, psych patient. The uh, the ER then keeps a bed open for the real serious calls. And EMS and fire and police, whichever call it is, don't have to run that particular call. That's one less call that they're running as well. So there's even technology out there to reduce the actual call volume. But again, you know, you don't you don't hear that really being discussed. So this is the thing. There are lots of things that we can do to improve that side. I mean, I flog the flog the, the dead horse when it comes to the work week. We have to take a step back and actually bring a firefighter's work week down to what the civilian will be working, not eight hour days, but the the amount of hours per week. But then address why people are calling nine one one. You know, and yeah. and if they're using us like you know socialized medicine, then Maybe we need to rethink the way that we do healthcare and actually have something that forges us to make the health, the nation healthier and, and address obesity and put PE back in schools and serve our kids real food rather than processed shit so that yeah. then we can turn that kind of downward spiral the opposite way, which in turn will then be less calls for our first responders and less beds filled in our hospitals. Yeah, and, and it's funny you mention that because that's we're uh, actually in the process of looking into that and it's a, a trial period and I believe one of our neighboring departments is actually doing it where dispatch will will triage the call if you will and if if there's a possibility to put them online with a physician um they're starting to do that it doesn't happen often because we're still in that learning phase but what a what a great thing that hopefully gets implemented across the United States because it it, it really truly would help just something as simple as that absolutely well I want to go back to Compton and then we'll walk our way through again um LA riots first, we've all seen worst case videos. We've all seen the truck driver pulled out and you know, and all the, the, the horrible things that were happening. Amidst all of that, through your eyes, because we 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 the media loves to paint certain groups as, you know, evil and then put us into pigeonholes and then set us against each other. Did you have any moments of witnessing kindness and compassion amongst, you know, that very, very um 
sad event in U.S. history? That's a good question. Um, that was a long time ago, and, and if anything really stood out to me, I'm not thinking of it, but I, I will say this. When I worked in the area, um, I was a white teenager, and um, I never – I probably was wrong in feeling this way, but I never really felt threatened. And I, I thought it was really interesting there that at some point, a lot of times, first responders, believe it or not, got a respect. Um, it doesn't always happen. You always get that bad seed where somebody throws a rock at you, shoots at the fire engine or something like that, or, or does something. But for the most part, when I was in uniform and people knew that we were there to help them, um, they were pleasant. They, it wasn't like I was treated, uh, any different. And, uh, and I, I think that's why I enjoyed it there so much is driving in. I was a little uneasy and we always joke about it. Uh, you would, um, uh, including the, the, Compton police officers, you'd come up to a stoplight, look to the left, look to the right, boom, right through the red light just to get to your station. But once once you got that that um, that uniform on it, it felt like maybe there was a little bit of like this person's here to help me, and and you're you're treated a little different. Um, it's, I didn't really, I can't think of any times where I, I witnessed something where I was like, oh, that's just extremely uh, amazing, but. It happened. It, um, like people help people there all the time. It's just I was probably young and just didn't really stick with me where I where I really picked up on it. Where now I'm way more um, vigilant. I, I, I notice things a lot more than I used to as, as a kid. I'll tell you that much. I remember driving with my medic partner in Orange County, and there's a, a street OBT that was kind of our right red light area, and you know a lot of the the underworld was there. Let's put it that way. And, you know, two, three in the morning, we're driving down and they would obviously scatter if PD came by. But when we yeah. were there, they would wave. And I just remember thinking, what a unique profession. How many people would, you know, on in, in the country with that kind of, you know, person at that moment in their life wave to you? But, you know, when you take a step back, when it all goes wrong, we're it. I mean, you know, maybe sometimes people are screaming, thinking that we took too long. But ultimately, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a crip or a blood, or you know, you're you're homeless under a bridge, or you're a sex worker or whatever. We're, and I don't mean this in a in a self idolizing way, but we're the kind of knights in white armor. Even these people that have kind of been discarded by so many elements of society, when the fire engine and, and an ambulance or rescue shows up. You know, and obviously PD, depending on your situation, but a lot of times, you know, the people are not on the right side of the law at that point. You know, it's such a unique perspective. And it's it's sad that firefighters don't really have much of a voice in society because what we see, the lens that we have on society is so, so unique. And yet, you know, not that many of us want to be famous, but name a famous firefighter. Name, name the right. Jocko Willink of the fire service. There isn't. And then, right. so the society is missing all these lessons. And as you said, when we make a TV show, it becomes a fucking soap opera rather than a true gritty look at what we see and lessons learned, you know? So right. yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting being trusted by everyone from, you know, a billionaire through to, you know, a man or woman living under a bridge. For sure. For sure. Um, that's, that's the, the one thing that I've really enjoyed about my career. And, and, you know, we run calls with police officers all the time. We work with the San Diego Sheriff's Department. I have the highest respect for them. Um, I worked with a group of individuals there. They're just amazing. 
and uh, we go on calls and they'll even joke around like, oh, the heroes are here. And uh, and it's like, man, I'll tell you what, if if anyone puts their life on the line, th- those people do it every day. And uh, it, it's it's kind of a bummer to see, uh, you know, a police officer who stands side by side for me and someone can sit there and hate them and, and like me. But you, you're right. It's it's a it's a really unique pr- profession. And that's the one thing is. Uh, you just don't want anyone to abuse it because it's it's uh, we have s- such a good respect from the community, and we might not be the jock of Wilnix, but I tell you what, a kid still loves to come up and talk to a firefighter at the school. So that is the one thing that we have. Absolutely, and I just did a post today about law enforcement. I mean, it sickens me because you know whether it was Hialeah, Anaheim, um, Orange County sheriffs, you know the, the the law enforcement groups that I've worked with. Yes, I have interacted with cops that are fucking assholes. They exist. There's no question about that. But most of these men and women leave their families the same way as we do, firefighters, for 12 hours. But most people aren't trying to kill us. There's a lot more people trying to kill them. And the way that they're portrayed because of the, you know, the actions of actions of the rotten few and also the products of some shitty leadership in departments that hasn't demanded high bar fitness standards high level of training etc is so unfair for all the men and women that put on their vest every morning or every evening and literally go out to protect everyone while the rest of them are in their beds so you know i think it's up to us as in in fire and ems to advocate for our law enforcement men and women as well oh totally um i just had a, a call the other day and sheriffs are, are just like us they're they're understaffed sometimes and I'll always ask the officer if they're going to go into something. I don't have a gun, but I tell you what, I have a radio. And uh, there's one where he had to walk down into a homeless encampment by himself. I'm all, hey, man, I'm just going to hang out here until this is done because uh, let's all get out of this together. And uh, and he was like, yeah, if you don't mind hanging out, that'd be great. And so, uh, yeah, we all have to work together. Absolutely. All right. So you find yourself in your career department now. Um, we're going to get to 2015, of course, but as you progress through, what are some of the, you know, what you term career calls that you had up to that point? Um, some of my career calls, uh, I would say the biggest one uh, was the Cedar fires in 2003. At that time, it was it was one of the largest uh, fires in California, and it ran right, right, right through our area. And so um, some people aren't familiar. I was on a strike team, which is basically a, a group of fire engines that go to wildland fires. Um, I was up in the northern San Diego County area, and uh, at that time, uh, the fire going on was called the Old Fires in San Bernardino, and as firefighters, we want to get some. And so I'm in this like fire camp that there's the fires out, we're just sitting around, and this old fire, I'm hearing of fire engines driving out of, of neighborhoods with their beds on fire, and just guys getting some. And I'm like, oh man, why are we sitting here? Why are we doing this? And uh, and so I uh, had a great um, strike team leader at the time. He was actually a Santee chief. His name was Jim Covington. This guy was amazing. He was it was a guy that just says, you challenge him and he's going to take that challenge. And so I just remember in the middle of the night, he comes and gets us and he's like, hey, we're heading back to San Diego. And I'm like, oh, my God, are you serious? The fires in San Bernardino, there's fire engines that are burning up. We got to go up there. And he's like, listen, this one's big in San Diego. We're leaving. And the fire camp was like, no, you can't leave. We have to demob you. That's a process where they go and they check your engine out. They're like, no, you can't leave. We're demobing you. And uh, Cuff, my chief said, we're out of here. See you later. Call me. And and we just start going down the the freeway. And and so I'm 
I was an engineer at the time and and we're going down the 15 into, into San Diego and the captain I was working with, um, we look at this header and we're like, that is the biggest header I've ever seen in my entire life. And uh, we rolled into town and the chief's orders, it was the first time I've ever been assigned this. It was like, just put something out, man. I don't care where you go, just put something out. And so we're just rolling in these communities, uh, houses are on fire. You're like, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to save this one. This one's written off. And it was seven days of just putting out house fires, jumping from place to place. Um, totally exhausted. I, we were, we were going probably 36 hours straight. Um, there was a point when I was an engineer and I just sat on the tailboard and I, I fell asleep on the tailboard and they're calling for water. And then the firefighter runs back, here's your lease, turn on the water. And I'm like, oh shoot. And I wake up and turn on the water because it was just, it was just nonstop for hours, um, but it was something. It was it was surreal. I remember there's an area called Harbison Canyon in San Diego, and there was a gentleman on our our strike team. So I said it was five engines. It's it's mixed department. He was a captain with Chula Vista. Don't remember his name, but he was a Vietnam veteran. And and uh, we were rolling through Harbison Can Canyon, and he said that was the closest I've ever come to Vietnam. Was that that scene where we're just going through? Power lines down. There's people walking in the middle of the street, um, houses on fire, people standing out in front of their houses burning. Uh, we were going through right after the head of the fire. So we were just coming in through trying to do any kind of saves or, or anything. And it was, it was, you're just seeing propane takes light off your, your houses. It was, I'll never forget that. And, and you also, you just hear the ammunition from everyone's back in the back country. Everyone have guns and, and there's just constant ammunition propane takes blowing it was it was it was a sight i'll never forget well obviously we just had the fires in maui and uh one of my friends who uh uh joshua jukes who was a maui firefighter and he's uh not at the moment was saying that there's a huge underreporting of the amount of children that are missing in that fire which is you know devastating and, and i don't i don't have the news specifically but obviously our kind of um social media feeds tend to indicate what's going on in the world um and it seems like people have moved on a little bit i don't know if i'm just naive but i certainly haven't seen that amount of fatalities reported um you know that then we, it's important that after these fires we evaluate and it's not like it's the firefighters fault specifically but as a community like what do we do right what do we do wrong how did we lose so many homes you know with structure protection and um wildland interface mitigation with that fire specifically do you remember a kind of the after action um you know tailboard critique so that as a community and as a fire service we could all learn from that the the big tailboard uh, critique on that one it was more the fire service there was a huge problem with communications on that one. Uh, and I don't remember the exact thing. I was an engineer at the time. I believe there was some VHF and some 800s. Um, and so different radios, uh, communication uh, was definitely an issue. I can't remember if some some towers went down, but um, the communication was um, a huge factor. And uh, we did address a lot of that over the years. Um, and like these career fires, literally, um, I'd say five years after that, I was a probationary captain. We had another fire, the Harris fire down there, which um, was uh, the witch fire. Harris fire was just another big, big fire in San Diego. And uh, the communication was uh, completely changed. It was, it was, um, it was like a 180, if you will. It, it just, 
you know, there's always problems, but it seemed like things had cleaned up a little bit in there. And and obviously I was in the captain role. So I was more in tune with what was going on as far as communication and radio stuff and, and stuff. But um, I do remember communication was a big issue for the Cedar fire. Now, what about exposures, carcinogens? Obviously we're going to get into your kind of cancer journey, but initially, uh, you know, early in my career, it was rarely talked about. And as we got into it, it became more of a conversation, decon, et cetera. You know, we're realizing, oh, maybe we should not be overhauling with no mask, you know, and then you progress through even more. But now we're realizing, oh shit, you know, the AFFF and even the the um, water resistant chemicals in our gear. I mean, there's so many, you know, carcinogens, benzene from the station. When you look back, were there any significant exposures or do you think it was cumulative exposures? Uh, I would say a couple significant exposures, but more cumulus when you, when you really look back in it. Um, and I remember, um, and like, we'll, we'll get into the cancer thing, but uh, I had to do a deposition in front of a, an attorney and, and, and he, and, and a deposition, you have to plead your case. And I had cancer, obviously we're going to find that out. And so I pleaded my case and I spent an hour talking about the lifetime exposures of, of fire department and, it, and it, it, it goes deep. Like, and so first of all, I grew up in an era where BAs weren't acceptable. I'm, they were acceptable. Like I didn't, you didn't go on fires without a BA when I started, but I do remember in my internship, LAFD had this bulletin and it said, you gotta wear your BA on roofs. And, and I remember guys going, yeah, wear a BA on roof. Wow. That's like, that that's cumbersome. I gotta get my saw and axe, and that's cumbersome. I, I I could be quick and get off the roof and not wear my BA, and 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 uh, that was just a little one. And maybe it was just a point of view of some. Maybe others. I, I wasn't a firefighter with LAFD, so I don't know their whole culture there. But it was. I was like, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. And you know, as you progress, you're like car fires. Ah, oh, you, you know, you can knock the car fire out, and and you don't have the trash fires. Same thing. A lot of guys didn't wear wear BAs with trash fires. Car fires and trash fires are some of the worst things you can be exposed to. Some of the plastics on cars, you just touch them and you're going to get cancer there and with, you know, time. And so through time, it's I've seen it where, okay, you wear your BA on car fires. We wear our BAs on, on trash fires. Um, but you still have those exposures over the years. So I had that. And I wouldn't say I had it a lot, but there was times where a trash fire, you take the, the real line and just put it out real quick. It was small, but... Now it's like, no, don't put your BA on because there could be one thing in there that's just not good. And so we have that exposure throughout my career. And then you also have just the the diesel fumes over your lifetime. You're, you're going into, um, as far as for wildland fires, you're, you're going into camps full of fire engines. You have that diesel exposure. Um, like you said, the AFFF, we never knew what it caused. It, and now it, we're, we're finding out it's not good for you. Our turnouts, the PFAS and our, our turnouts. Uh, I was in charge of our PPE for a while and finding out that hey, our, our PPE causes it. So you have that going on. And then like just all the synthetic material that we're, we're dealing with now, you know, a, a carpet catches on fire. You don't know what's in it. Some batteries catch lithium ion batteries are catching on fire. We're dealing with all kinds of things that are, are definitely. It's gonna it's gonna impact us in the future, and uh, and um, hopefully there's stuff coming out. I know that, that we've been really proactive about deconning ourselves, but I'll tell you this: it doesn't happen all the time. And I, and I have a box on my fire engine that's a decon box. It has soap, it has a hose, it has the coupling to put onto your fitting, so the hose fits on there, so we can decon on fires. And and some guys are are really great about doing it, 
and other people kind of blow it off and they're like, ah, it wasn't that big of a fire. Um, and that's another thing with my department and, and I'm really big on is whenever we go on fires, I file out an exposure report and I actually make it for my whole crew and I'll walk over to them. I'll hand it to them and I'll say, here you go. And sometimes they still won't turn it in, but I've done my best to try to get that person to at least document that lifetime exposures because we have a ton that we don't document. So let's at least document the stuff that we can put a incident number, a time and stuff on. So uh, I'm a big fan of, of documenting our exposures. What does your firefighter schedule? What does your work week look like? We work a four, six schedule. So it's uh, on one day, off one day. So 24 hours. So we work a four shift cycle on day, off day. And then we have four days off, come back for that four shift cycle. And then we get six days off in a row. That's exactly what I worked in Anaheim. So it's a 56 hour work week. Correct. So when we have the cancer conversation, the same way as when we have the mental health conversation, it's like, oh, it's it's what, you know, uh, James or, or David saw. That's why they're struggling. And we don't talk about sleep deprivation. We don't talk about childhood trauma. The same with the cancer conversation. We figured out all the dragons are at the castle wall, but we're not talking about the fact that we're knocking blocks out the castle and draining the moat which is sleep. So this is the the other side and it needs to be, in my opinion, this is why this whole presumption thing and you're going to have to do a, you know, sit with a lawyer for an hour to prove. It should honestly, because it's proven as a, you know, carcinogen, which I believe the same level of smoking, if I'm not mistaken, but certainly up there on that table regardless. It should be like, I worked these shifts for X amount of years. That's the conversation over. I was exposed to some stuff, but that that ability to to um to deal with these carcinogens to to not have a massive response has been diminished because i haven't slept every third day and you know a lot of cycles or every other day in that that eight day span that you're working 24 24 i am awake for 24 hours or my eye you know one eye open so this is the other part of the conversation and it really irks me now when people are fighting these firefighters to prove or show me how you got cancer well i will Look at my, yeah. this is my shift schedule. See, ABC, yeah. ABC, ABC, there's your fucking proof. But this is never in this cancer conversation and it needs to be. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I even use that in mind and, and it, it, it didn't go anywhere. And, you know, the World Health Order actually says that sleep disorder can cause cancer. So um, I agree with you 100%. That's definitely something. And, you, you know, something that's even more scary and, it, and it's going to come to light. Well, it's hopefully it's to light now, but... Uh, no one can or is doing anything about is, is you look through the years. So at, uh, on my, on my retirement plan, um, I'm very fortunate. California has a great retirement system. I get 3% of 50 for every year of service up to 50. Well, just due to cost, um, we've changed it to 2.7 at 57. So I'll, I have to go to 50 to get mine, which is, I think that's a lot better, but the, the kids getting hired now have to make it till they're 57 to get their full retirement benefits. And uh, that's scary because some, some people are, are starting their career at 26, 30. Now, now you're making somebody work into their possibly sixties. And uh, that's terrifying. Um, every new kid that I have come in, I tell them, man, I want you to put money aside right now, whatever it is, whatever you can do, Get some kind of financial ad- ad- advisor because you can't work till you're 57. This job does not allow you to work till you're 57. You will retire a broken person. 
And uh, it, it scares me to, to see the future of, of what is going to happen. And it goes back to our recruitment question. So I've heard we have an amazing pension and, and benefits and healthcare. Show me. Oh, well, actually, the healthcare has gone away. You get COBRA for 12 months and then you're on your own. And oh, like you said, you know, yes, the guys that got hired in the 80s retired with a great pension, but obviously they didn't have the wellness education. So some of their, their lifespans were still short. But now you're researching and go, no, this isn't an amazing. I know, you know, private businesses that have a much better benefits package than you guys have. You're believing, you know, that what they got 50 years ago and it's carried through to today. You know, and obviously yeah. we don't enter this profession for the benefits, but they were for the longest time. I remember in the fire service, like, yeah, we don't get very well paid, but this is why when you retire, you get X, but that's not the case. So it's, it's smoke and mirrors. And, you know, I don't think most people wake up wringing their hands going, I'm going to kill some firefighters today. But the number of people I've heard that have said, you know, especially in, in uh, counties or, or excuse me, states with presumption laws that they will just string them along. And it's been said, heard by people that I know, we just keep fighting them until they die. They've got cancer, they're going to die. You know, So this is what we're up against. And this is why we have to advocate for our people. You know, it's funny you say that too, because you look at the presumptive laws and uh, California is a, a presumptive state and uh, I still had to fight my claim. And so that's um, exactly to your point. So let's get into that then. Um, you know, you're progressing through your career. Um, tell me when you first, you know, had any signs that made you concerned and send you down the medical route to find out what was going on. Well, this is, uh, you know, everyone has their weakness, right? And uh, this was my weakness. Um, I knew I was sick for a long time, and there was, there's, my wife didn't even know. I was just to myself about it. And uh, I knew I was sick. Um, I didn't know what it was, but I knew I was sick. And uh, so one thing, I run a half marathon every year with my wife. We do it every year. It's got to be probably 15, 19 times we've done just this year. So I was probably around seven to 10 times at this time. And I ran the half marathon and I couldn't do it. I had to walk a lot. And uh, and prior to that, I, I had PR. I, I would do, I'm not, I'm not like a super athlete. I'm not a super runner, but eight i would run an eight minute mile and do this half marathon and feel good and, and uh and then i noticed when i was training for this other one that i get fatigued a lot and and so i i come home i'd have to nap tired all the time i went to work i was tired all the time and uh, i was anemic which i didn't know but so at that time I'm, i ran this half marathon and i never called in sick at work never called in sick after that half marathon because i was just i couldn't go to work i was fatigued i was tired i was just I, I couldn't, and I just blamed it on the half marathon. I'm like, oh, I dehydrated myself. I took myself out. So at that point, I think my wife started to pick up that I was, I was sick. And I kind of was telling her like, yeah, I'm kind of feeling sick. And, and so she said, you need to go to the doctor. So this is February when I'm finally kind of admitting it. And then now we're talking probably June when I, when I finally went to the doctor and um, I didn't want to go to the doctor. Um, I ended up having colon cancer and uh, as oddly as enough as this is, the colonoscopy is the one thing where I was like, I don't want a colonoscopy. I'll die before I get a colonoscopy. I just, I do not want that. And, uh, and there was a point where I was like, did I wait just too long? Is it just through my body? Do I just need to wait this out and die? And so June was the time where I was like, all right, I gotta go to the doctor and see, just, I gotta fix this. This is bad. Um, and so I went and the doctor, uh, just, a just, a I, <laughs> This day, my wife wants to wring his neck. 
because I went into him and I was like, Hey doc, I'm having some bowel issues. I've got some blood and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried. And so he kind of goes, Oh, well, we'll probably have to do a colonoscopy, but you know, I'm going to send you for this CAT scan. And so I get this CAT scan and, and he comes back and he goes, wow, it's, it's, uh, it's either a huge infection or you got the biggest mass this guy's ever seen. And he goes, I think it's diverticulitis. And I was like, okay, all right, you're the doctor. And I, and I even mentioned to him, oh, hey doc, I'm a firefighter and we, we have a high incidence of cancer. Do you think this is cancer? And he goes, and he told me this phrase and I, ah, I hate it. He's all, when you think you hear horses, don't look for zebras. And uh, I've heard a couple of people say that. It just drives me nuts to this day because that was the one where I was like, oh, okay, sounds good. You're the doctor. And so he gives me this medication. There's just an uh, antibiotic and and uh, and some steroids. And, and I actually felt a little better. So I was like, oh, it was diverticulitis. So I, I took that. And and at that point, when I finished it, then I got back again. And so I went back to him. Hey, doc, that didn't work. All right, well, let's have the dose. Let's do this. And I do it again and still doesn't work. And, uh, and so then I go back to him the third time and I'm like, Hey, what's, what's going on doc? Like, do I need to get more? And he goes, well, what's your colonoscopy say? I'm like, you never scheduled it for me. And he goes, well, I'm going to, I'm going to have you go to the GI. So I finally in September, I got an appointment with the GI. So we're going way before February, but February is when I started to accept it to September where I finally get the GI appointment. And I went in and it was, it was my pre-consult for a colonoscopy and, the doctor, I go in and lay down. He feels my stomach, and and I never felt this before, but like he felt my stomach, and he his eyes changed, and he's like, "You're coming back tomorrow for a colonoscopy," and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> I can't, doc. I work tomorrow. Um, you know, it's fire season. I I can't be there." And he goes, "No, you're you're calling me and sick. You're you're coming back tomorrow," and I said. Okay, uh, well, I'll see if I get a call. They can't cover my shift. I'll have to reschedule. And my wife was like, no, "No, you're coming back tomorrow." And so, went back the next day, got my colonoscopy, and it was immediate. Like he, he was like, "I can't even. I couldn't even get through. Like you're almost blocked. You have a tumor in there that's just huge." He's and and he's like, "You definitely 100% have cancer." And uh, I was still in denial. I I was. Um, I remember just zoning out by myself for a little bit. And, uh, and I was like, you don't know, like you haven't even done a biopsy. And, uh, and he was like, I know I'm a doctor. I do this all the time. You have cancer. I'm scheduling you with a surgeon. Then I went to see my surgeon and I was lucky to get just a fantastic surgeon. Uh, and, uh, he was, he took me in and, and, uh, right away, he's like, all right, we got scheduled surgery right away. And, uh, and that was the other thing is, is my insurance at the time, it was it was a good insurance, but it was like he's putting in for it; they're not approving it, and he's telling me there's a point when I was scheduled for the surgery. He goes, I'm, and it was a while. I would say it was maybe two weeks of seeing him. He was he told me he goes, if they don't approve it by Friday, you're going in the emergency room, and you're saying you have abdominal pain, and I'll meet you in the in the uh, operating room, and we're going to do emergency surgery. And so I was like, okay, doc. And so it finally got approved. Um, but I, they, the whole process, I was, I was just terrifying. Like when you talk about cancer, I, the one of the things that I remember going to my surgeon and thank God I had my wife. Um, I walk in and he's like, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, he was appalled that the doctor even let it get this far. And, and he even mentioned, he goes, that doctor that you went to should lose his job. 
And, uh, and so, but he was very aggressive with me and so aggressive that when I went to meet him, he's like, okay, I'm on, what's the plan? And he's like, well, we're going to take it out. You're going to have a colonoscopy or I mean, a, um, ah, I can't think of the name of uh, a colostomy. You can have a colostomy. And at first I was just like, all right, doc, I, I guess we're, we're in it to win it. So save my life. Let's do this. And my wife was like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. <laughs> so what's our other options? And so then, you know, through speaking with the GI specialist and my surgeon, we came up with a thing where I didn't need it, thank God. And so um, I made it through the surgery and uh, it was, it was, it was bad. Like the, the tumor was so big that it encroached on my bladder and they had to remove part of my bladder because this thing was so huge and they were worried about the possibly spreading my bladder. So they, they took an area out. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was my cancer journey. I could go on for hours about chemotherapy and maybe we'll get into that and just the terrifying things that you have to go through. But, um, yeah, it was, it was something else. Well, let's go into that. Cause I want to get to obviously the mental impact, the emotional impact of this, you know, being this, this rescuer, this very fit um, first responder who then the physicality is taken away, you know, the thought of even having to carry a colostomy bag with you, but get into the treatment options. So talk to me about that journey because it seems to be like, well, let's just go go start pumping toxins through your body. I've heard some encouraging things about amino, um, as I said, amino, immunotherapy, that's the world's biggest uh, tongue twister for me today, um, which makes more sense. You're not agent oranging the whole body and then, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully everything starts again. So I think that, you know, there are some much better options you know, in the the horizon, I'm hoping that a lot of people that have this diagnosis are going to have a much better outcome and a much better time. Talk to me about chemo, though, because I haven't met a single person that didn't say it was absolutely brutal physically and mentally. Yeah, so uh, I'll start off with just uh, everything as far as your your mental health. So even when I went into the surgery, uh, the doctor told me, hey, there's a chance you could still wake up with... Um, a colostomy and I was terrified. And so this is start off from there. Since we're talking about mental health, because I think this all had an effect on me and it had an effect on my family too. So um, I go under, I wake up and I remember I'm just in severe pain. They cut me from my, my belly button down and uh, it's just one huge cut in your stomach. And I remember going in, the doctor's like um, the anesthesiologist, he goes, Hey, this one is a painful one. I'm giving you Dilaudid. He goes, don't worry about getting addicted. You hit that every 15 minutes or whenever you feel like it. And you just take that. And, and cause this, this is, this is going to be real. And I remember waking up and I was like, Oh, no shit. Like this is, this is pain. And I remember I couldn't do anything except for raise my right hand and feel my side. And when I felt my side, I go, there's no cost for me. And they're like, no, we did without it. I'm like, Oh my God. Um, so that was, that was one of those like wins in the long run where I was like, Oh God, thank you. But, um, I'll never forget this. So, um, my wife was allowed to come back and see me and uh, I'm very close to my wife. We're going to be on 30 years here in March. And, uh, she, she comes in and she looks at me all in pain and, uh, she's the, just a great soldier. And I remember her walking out there like, okay, we're going to take you to her room. And I'm like, okay. And she, they're like, you want to go ahead? And she, she goes ahead. And literally two minutes later, I hear, I hear code blue in the operating or the, the, I don't know what B 
PICU or whatever, basically where you get out of the operating room. And uh, and and I see everyone scramble towards where my wife went. And I'm like, code blue, that's bad. Like, that's bad. So I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty much drugged up. And I'm like, code blue, is that my wife, Jill? And they're like, don't worry, everything's okay. Everything's okay. And I'm like, what the hell? And so it turns out my wife, through like just seeing me in the in the, the state I was, she walked out, and when she walked out, she just fainted and slammed up against the wall. It wasn't like the code blue full rest, but it was the so she ended up getting stitches from the ordeal. And so that whole thing was just like uh, it, talking about just hard to get through. It 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 plays a role in in, in the whole outcome. So through that process, I actually had some really good news when when I when I got my biopsy. They I was we you know you go through stages, and I was stage three C, I believe it was two C. I can't remember. Anyways, it, it wasn't two C. I think it was. And uh, so there's actually some good news. And but what they were telling me is they're like, you're gonna need radiation. You're gonna need chemotherapy. And uh, I remember going, wow, I really don't want either one of them, but. From what I understand, radiology is terrible because it just fries everything and, and it kills everything and you have problems afterwards and, and like even stuff like just um, I think it causes scar tissue in your intestines where, where you start to get um, blockages more more frequently. And I'm like, no, can we? I don't want to do this radiation for sure. I don't want to do chemotherapy, but radiation is terrible. And so... I'm going through and they're like, well, we're gonna have to do this. And they refer me and I go to this, this uh, oncologist and, and once again, not really happy with them. Uh, the, the way they dealt with us wasn't very good. So my wife took it on her own to find a doctor for me at a, a hospital, UCSD family oncologist, which has been fantastic. He was just a great guy. And so uh, something I haven't mentioned is during this process, there's another gentleman from my department that was fighting colon cancer also. And he ended up passing away um, about, I don't remember the years, but it was probably in 2016, 2017. And so I remember getting out of the hospital, being fixed, and then he had been like through the same path as me pretty much. And he wanted to tell me about like what he experienced. And so thank God I didn't go with what this gentleman went through because it terrified me. And that's what I've been really trying to not do is because everyone's everyone's journey is different. So I remember him telling me, okay, you're going to get a port. Uh, you're going to get chemotherapy. You're going to get this, you know, these cocktails are usually what happens. Here's what happened to me. And it sounded terrible. And it was, it was terrible for him. And I did get kind of the same things, but it was, I was just terrified the whole time knowing it. So first of all, he, he, he had mentioned, I got a port. And when, when he got his port, I think they maybe kind of uh, disrupted his heart and it sent him into an arrhythmia. So when I go to my doctor, the one I finally get at UCSD is like, all right, here's our path. We're going to do, we're going to put a port in you and then we're going to start chemotherapy. And I was like, no port, sir. No doc, no, no port. I don't want a port. And he's like, no, you have to have a port because this stuff that we're putting through your veins will just tear up your veins. So this goes into your, 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 uh, your heart in in a more diluted fashion. So you don't get messed up as bad. And I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. So now I'm just going, I'm just like direct injecting heart with the stuff, but that's the technology at the time. And that's what we had to do. And uh, I guess I'm still here. So I'm lucky about that. So I do get the port and then we have to start that chemotherapy path. And uh, that was, 
it was scary because you go in this room and you're you're you sit in this room and you're with a bunch of people that look like they're not doing well and i'm sure i didn't look like i was doing well either and you watch a nurse and she puts on a hazmat suit to give you your medication and you're like wait you're wearing a hazmat suit why are you putting that in my body and uh and uh once again I can't complain about my care because I ended up finding a nurse that just was fantastic. And she was my nurse through the whole journey and she would explain things to me, but to, I still, they put chemotherapy in me. And so some of the things that had effect is to this day, I have some numbness in my fingers and my toes. There's times where I, I would, I couldn't drink cold or hot liquids after my chemotherapy because it could damage the, my, I guess there's some kind of like uh, nerve endings in your throat where it, it would actually harm them. And even if you would drink it, it would hurt. So um, they were, they were very, very specific, like, okay, when you get down with chemotherapy, don't grab anything cold. Don't drink anything cold. Don't drink anything hot. Don't, don't do this. When you go to the bathroom, make sure you close the lid on your toilet because you flush it and the chemo stuff will go in the air and then your family will be exposed to it. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like you're putting this in my body. This, this doesn't seem right. And, uh, and so I did go through that whole process and there was some side effects and it, it wasn't an easy journey. I would say I probably had it easier than some people after hearing my, my friend's journey, but it still sucked. And the more thing is just like knowing what is doing to your body and having that medical background going, I don't, I don't know if this isn't right. We can't do this. Um, but like I said, I'm here today and, and knock on wood, I'm healthy. So I'm happy about that. Um, I didn't need to get radiation. I talked to my doctor a lot, and I think he did initially want to do radiation, but I think he took a chance with me and just said, you know what, um, we'll hold off on the radiation. So I do believe through this process, you also have to either have a strong person with you or or yourself have to have that that ability to to discuss things with your doctor and also let them know, hey, I'm willing to take this chance for this. And uh, so luckily with those few instances, it, it, I think I had a positive outcome in the long term. Now, what about from a nutritional standpoint? Were you given a specific kind of diet and, and told to do lifestyle changes? The, the lifestyle changes, which were, um, it's kind of interesting. It's basically like isolate yourself um, because you're, you're, um, a walking you're, bomb. Um, yeah. <laughs> Your, your immunity, well, that and your immunity is so decreased because they just tear your body up. And and the other thing was is eat any kind of red meat that you can, um, high proteins. And it, it was more like you need to get all the protein that you can get. Like um, it, it was, I just remember, I don't remember now, but I was taking protein shakes at some point, uh, which I, this day I, I can't take them anymore because of that. I can't stand the flavor just because of that mental um, but they're really big on making protein and, uh, I'm a sugar freak. And it was funny because I would go in and, and, uh, I told the nurse once, I'm like, I eat jelly beans and ice cream. I'm sorry. And she goes, Oh my God, don't do that. Your body like cancer eats sugars. And I was like, Oh, no kidding. So I went to my doctor and I'm like, Hey, hey doc, like this whole sugar thing, um, is that a deal with cancer? And, and in his mind, which he's, he's a really sharp dude. He said, the amount that that does, like your body regulates your glucose. So it's not like you're getting spikes of sugar that's going to increase your cancer from a little jelly bean. So it, long story short, I, I could eat my jelly beans still and, and ice cream. Um, but um, there was really no like 
change your lifestyle or eat this. They just wanted to make sure that um, I was getting enough protein and they want to see you gain weight. That's her thing. They don't want, they don't want you to lose weight. So um, that was, I remember that was the biggest factor in everything. And then staying away from everyone, which I ignored. Um, he, my doctor and I still joke about this today, the next year. So I got my surgery in October. I was in chemotherapy. I started in sometime in January. And I told you the, uh, the Huntington Beach half marathon is in February, a Super Bowl Sunday. So I was like, Hey doc, I'm going to run a half marathon. He goes, you can't, you can't do it because you'll dehydrate yourself. You get blisters, you can get infection. It's a recipe for disaster. You can't do it. And I was like, ah, sorry, I'm going to do it. And I didn't run it. Uh, I, I walked a mile, ran a mile, walked a mile, ran a mile, but I did it. And I was exposed to people on spine. And the other thing is uh, you're an Anaheim guy. I was big on Disneyland. My wife and I, we, uh, our first date was at Disneyland and I was like, I have Disneyland passes. So you know what? I'm going to go to Disneyland every once in a while. And he was like, ah, I can tell I'm not going to stop you, but I prefer that you stay away from crowds. So I'm like, yeah, all right, sounds good. But uh, made it through just fine. <laughs> well, the reason I ask, I mean, you've got colon cancer. So obviously the alimentary canal that everything that you eat and drink is going through. And so many times, you know, my wife lost one of her friends to cancer and it was actually the surgery that she died from. Or other one of her friends is going through it right now and there's only four in this friend group. Um, but it's the chemo, it's the surgery, but it's not, let's get your body as close to homeostasis as we can. Let's bolster your body's natural, you know, immunity. Because I mean, the, the body is an incredible thing and wants to heal. And I'm not saying that's all it takes, but that needs to be in the conversation. And so often, you know, I, I know people that are going through chemo and they're going out and, you know, having their margaritas and, and that nothing's changed, you know? And it's like, this lifestyle is why you've got cancer, you know? I mean, ultimately your, your defenses broke down and you had the exposures and this is where you're at. You know, the medication side is part of the conversation, but the you know, the holistic size needs to be the other. And, you know, what you eat, the quality of your sleep, you know, are you doing mindfulness? You know, think about taking a, a vacation, get away from stress and work and everything. But you don't usually hear that with a lot of these these cancer conversations. It was like very stoic, very matter of fact. You've got cancer. We're going to do chemo. We're going to chop this bit out. We're going to zap you your radiation. You know, your hair's going to fall out. And then, you know, fingers crossed, and I just think that's very irresponsible to not bring in, you know, not empower the human body to do its part as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, I agree 100%. And uh, and that was one thing that you, when you're going through the process, you're like, um, you don't know what to what to think because you can you can sit there and go, all right, what's working now and taking a chance of, well, you don't know what's going to work. Yeah, I agree that that like your body is an amazing thing, and and I do think that there's whenever I have something, I'm like I try to look now on more of a holistic thing, like just as simple as like I'm an owie, we'll take a an aloe branch and, and rub it on you, and that's pretty amazing. And so I think there's a lot of stuff out there, and it's it's a really tough thing to go through when when you're the person going through like I want to live. What do I need to do to live? And and uh, and there's not enough. Uh, maybe there's more information out now, but at the time it just seemed like I just got to do whatever I can to live. Well, it seems like maybe, I don't know if it was still around when you had your diagnosis, but certainly, you know, 10 plus years ago, 
pretty much anything holistic was being ridiculed and posed and called, you know, fake news for, you know, it's like, okay, so we're back to chemo. Is that what you're telling me? So juice and, you know, all these other things, like for me, my philosophy and my pre-plan is I'm going to go and, you know, I don't live life perfectly. So let me live life perfectly and then see where that takes me. Let go. I'm going to, you know, go to one of these retreats. Let me, let me get to as close as baseline as you can. Now, will that include chemo or maybe um, immunotherapy by that point or surgery? Maybe. But I think, yeah. you know, if your focus is firstly, all right, you know, I know I drink alcohol. I know I drink coffee. I know I do all these things. There's so much room for improvement. The stress that I have at the moment, I could get rid of that. What can I also do as part of this pre-plan I, you know, for the people that haven't been diagnosed with anything yet? So that when you are literally terrified because you've had that diagnosis, you're not just kind of paralyzed and listening to a doctor sending you down the path that if you'd had the time to think about it, maybe you wouldn't have gone down that path. Very true. And here's the other thing is doctors are, are well, I'd say they're a lot like firefighters. Um, they have their path and it's what works. So that path that works is the one they stick with. And so when you, when you do have that different idea, uh, there might not be so inclined to go for it. And, you know, and it's the same thing as us, like, you, you do this and it works well then I, why should i fix it it works this way and there's there's other stuff out there and we've learned that in the fire service too where, where just when when you uh you can change your tactics and still be successful and be even more successful so you touched on the fact that you had to prove or try and prove to a lawyer all these com com compounding elements that led to this that weren't related um walk me through your kind of mental health journey and then how did the organizational element either contribute to stress or if you had a great experience alleviate some stress on that path so uh as far as the mental health um it, it i would say that um uh, looking back at it, it it um it definitely affected me uh so i had to i had to prove my case which um that's a long story in itself but Basically, the fact of when I had to, when I had to do that deposition, um, I remember I was scheduled for one of my primary chemotherapies, and my chemotherapy went by clockwork. It was like you have it every two weeks on this day, you get a pump on you, you get it pumped in you for twenty four hours, then you you take it off. And so my deposition was scheduled for a day I had chemotherapy, and and I mentioned to my lawyer, and I was like, I can't make it. I have chemotherapy, and uh, it was non negotiable. It was, it was like, well, no, you have to be here and you're employed by this, this department. So we are telling you, you have to be here as, as you have to be here. And so um, I had to be there. So talk to my doctor and we were able to figure everything out, but it wasn't easy. And so there's, the, there's that aspect just right there alone where I was, um, I remember when I went into the deposition, I talked to my lawyer, I was like, Hey, I don't. I don't, I'm not in this, like, I'm not trying to get retired out. I'm not trying to get money. I'm just trying to like be taken care of and make sure that my family's taken care of in case something happens to me. And he had mentioned, you know what, this is just part of the thing that you have to go through. And, and so I went through the deposition and, uh, and as far as mental health, it was, you said like the organizational, um, when I first got diagnosed with cancer, it was very touching. I had, um, um, I didn't want to talk to anyone. So I, I got the news. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I called my best friend. He was a battalion chief. And I said, John, uh, I have cancer. I don't want anyone to know. I don't want anyone to call me. 
But if they want to text me, that's fine. I just can't talk to someone right now. And uh, the funny thing is, is um, I didn't know this, but everyone was kind of looking like, what's going on with Lee? He's calling in sick. He never calls in sick. I told you, I never called in sick. People realize that. And so I had, we were a department of 48 people, and I would say 15 of them were like, what's going on? Why, why is Lee calling sick? And uh, and uh, so all of a sudden, I, I tell my friend, hey, tell everyone I have cancer. Um, they can text me if they want. And I would say out of 48 people, I probably had 40 people text me just say, Hey, hang in there. We got you all that stuff. Very touching. It was, um, it made me, it made me like proud of where I worked. So I'd go on the other end and, um, the chief at the time, I'm not going to mention his name, but I was, I was going through the process. I was calling in sick and my friend, the battalion chief, he goes, you, you probably, he knew kind of what was going on. And he goes, you probably should let the fire chief know what's going on because he called in sick four times. Just let him know. And I said, okay. So I called him and he's like, oh, David, oh man, is there anything I can do for you? And and I mentioned, no, I just, I got to get through this. And he, and he said, do you mind if I call you back in a couple of days and check how you're doing? I'm all, no chief, that would actually mean a lot to me if you did that. Four months later, he called me back after he retired. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. <laughs> Um, so oh, that's check your clock there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, least, I guess he called me back. So I, I should be honored, but, uh, that, that really actually stung because those gentlemen that I'd worked with for a long time and, and, uh, it stung a little bit. So, but back to the group that I worked with, the group I worked with, um, as soon as I, I, um, I announced I had cancer, they got together, they pulled some money and they, uh, paid for a, house cleaner to come and clean my house once a week. I live in Temecula, Santee's in San Diego, about an hour away. And they they had mentioned they wanted my wife just to take care of me. So not to have to worry about the taking care of the house. So they paid for a house cleaner. Man, I can't tell you how long it was, but it was it was quite a bit. They they all pulled together and paid for a house cleaning, which is amazing. Um so I, I had that from them. Um and then later on down the road, so we talked so I had these battles and I, I, I ended up being in court for five years battling my claim and it's still not totally settled yet. There's still court dates. So that was 2015 and we're in 2023. But um, when I came back, I finally got back on the floor and it wasn't, Hey, feel sorry for me, but I was telling that my engine company, uh, I was like, Hey guys, if you can, save your sick leave. Cause times like this, I was off for a whole year and I never dipped into it. I used my sick leave and my annual leave and I was able to take the whole year off and not really have a, a cut and pay. And I said, but the one thing you have to be ready for is, you know, we get used to overtime and I didn't have overtime for a year. And the fact is you still have medical bills and the medical bills were bigger than they used to be because of some paths I had to take. So I racked up some medical bills and I was just telling them, I'm like, Hey guys, I was actually really lucky I racked up about $10,000 in medical bills, but can you imagine what would have happened over, you know, a year of this and and if I had bigger expenses? So, you know, as a father, the advice, just take care of yourself and make sure you keep yourself in check. Well, the, the firefighter at the time that was working with me, Adam, he took it upon himself to go to the department and do a GoFundMe and they raised um, $10,000 to pay for my medical bills. And I didn't know it. And I believe it was Christmas time. They presented me with a check for, for $10,000. And, 
And uh, I'm not an emotional guy, but I just had to go back in my room and they handed that to me and just reset because it was, it was an amazing thing. So the group of people I worked with were amazing. They, um, they've always been um, caring and taking care of me, but there is that aspect where I, I felt like I fought for a long time. And there's some other things that happen in the department that are, are off the, the cancer thing, but I'm just things that probably I, I shouldn't talk about, but um, it really, when I came back to work, I was an angry person, uh, not angry at people, but the situation, angry at life, angry at like why this happened to me. Um, and, and I, I don't know if you remember this, but um, two years after I um, got diagnosed, my wife was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And so that just sent me down to a whole nother path of anger. Like, my God, why is it happening to me? Why is it happening to my wife? Um, we're we're healthy people. We don't we don't eat out. We rarely get fast food, if ever. Um, we we make our own salad dressings. We we cook our own food. We eat fish. We eat chicken. We're uh, we all drink alcohol, so that's my my downfall. But other than that, we're we're relatively healthy. And I'm sitting there going, man, my wife gets cancer. I get cancer. I have to do these battles. Some things at work that happened to me that were unfortunate that that made me angry. And I came back to work and it was a struggle from day to day. And I'll be honest with you. And it wasn't day to day. It was years. I, I think where I finally found peace was in COVID times. And it's funny that you mentioned it. I've never thought about it, but I wonder if the COVID times, things slowed down. The stations weren't busy. We, we were, we were kind of isolated. Um, we had a little more rest. It wasn't as hectic. There wasn't the daily grind and, um, I was home every other day because everyone had to show up for work unless they had COVID, but we'd show up, we'd go home and, and it was a lot less stressful at that time. And at, at that time, I, I, um, I did listen to a lot of podcasts. I watched a couple of YouTube videos and, and read some books and all those things and, and listening to some, some thoughts. And I remember one that I listened to, um, this motivational speaker, Eric Thomas, he said uh, he had a, a thing about your um, values don't match your dreams and and realizing that like, man, I had a dream for something like this, but my values didn't match that and, and coming to terms with that and going, I'm going to stay with my values. That was part of my mental health coping where I was like, that helped me out a lot. And so through just a bunch of, of just self um reflection uh that that really helped me out um but i struggled for a long time it's interesting because covid you know that moment like you said gave you probably a little bit more rest and recovery you know which is which is again back to the cancer conversation you know if we're not sleeping every second day third day whatever it is that's half of the mathematical equation right there but the fact that you had a good experience is great because i know a lot of people with the isolation, with the not being able to eat together, you know, all these things, it was very negative. So the, you know, the fact that you had such a nightmare before, but that period worked well for you, A, is a great thing to hear, but B, underlines again the value of rest and recovery if you're going to ask these men and women to do what they do on a daily basis. Yeah, so true. And, you know, I, I got to go back on that. Yeah, COVID actually was really tough. And the fact of the fire station life of eating together, that was something I truly enjoy. And the camaraderie uh, that was taken away from us. 
But some of the things that I reflect back on now was um, I remember thinking this during the time when it was like the first week of COVID and it was just like, um, this is bad. People are going to die. We only send one person in the house, which I thought was ridiculous. So I'm like, no, I'm a captain. I need to be there for safety. How can I, how can I send my paramedic in to evaluate without me being in there with them? And there's just all these things that didn't make sense to me. But I remember staying at the back of the ambulance and looking at our, our two paramedics and I call me weird, but I was like, man, this is, this is true heroism. Cause I watched two gentlemen walk into a house. I did a little different. I kept the doors open and I stood in the doorway so I could see everything that was going on. But I watched two gentlemen go into a house and do their job with something that's just unknown. We just didn't know. So it's like, hey, you could get this. And yeah, this mask works or it might not. Um, You know, it's on your clothes. It's not on your clothes. And I watched guys every day go into this with, with unknown consequences and do their job. And I was like, that part of my life where I was like, I'm working with true heroes and it's not, it's not Santee, it's the United States. Anyone that's putting themselves in this positions, the sheriff's officers, anyone that's doing this, it's true heroes because they're, they're doing so. Even the the hospital staff, it was just so unknown and they're willing to do that, sacrifice that for people. It was, it was an enlightening part for me, I think. Well, you mentioned about this happening originally in 2015. We're in 2023 now, eight years later, and the legal side is still not resolved. What takes eight years or five years, whatever it was from the initiation, to prove to an organization that a firefighter who clearly has cancer, hence these scans and operations that work for X amount of years, that had these exposures, what takes five years? Because, I mean, to me, that's five years of unneeded stress for that responder when they're having to fight this kind of system as well. So I think the biggest thing that uh, was hard for me to understand, and it's still, I mean, it's not right, but I, I finally came to the terms that I am a number. Um, and it's not so, so I work for a small city, but they employ a, a insurance company. And so they go on what the insurance company's base off of. And um, I'm sure there's different insurance companies. And I'm sure cities can do things different. I don't, I'm not going to even get behind that because I don't know the, the nuts and bolts. But I can tell you my insurance that they that I had to go through with them, the workers' comp insurance, um, decided that they were going to challenge it, which I think is kind of normal. Some some places do, some places don't, but they're going to challenge it. And so at that point, you go to a, a, a physician. And I, I thought this was the weirdest thing because when I was in my deposition, um, the attorney at one point said, all right, well, your claim is going to be denied and you're going to have to go see a physician. And then my lawyer was like, he told me that's, that's normal. Don't worry about it. But the conversation that was like the city attorney or the workers' comp attorney was like, I want to use this physician. And my, my attorney is like, no chance you're going to use that physician. We're going to use this physician. And then that attorney goes, there's no chance we're going to use that physician. So they have to find a physician that they both agree on. And so I went to this physician they both agree on. And I, I go through the, the process and I, I'm sure he was a great guy. He was, he was, he was, I would just say, I don't know if he should have been practicing medicine. He was kind of old. And, and, uh, and so I remember going through my first, my first evaluation with him and the, the questions he was asking me, I'm like, this guy's setting me up for, for a, like a claim that's not, not workers comp. He's like, Oh, do you use Roundup? 
Well, of course I use Roundup. Everyone uses Roundup. I use Roundup at work sometimes. Okay, well, do you do you cut your own lawn? Do you do you uh, you know do you barbecue outside? Do you there's just I don't even remember the questions, but you're just like, all right, these are leading questions of like, okay, I, I get it, but and and so with him, I was like, yeah, I do barbecue, but here's what I I also do. I work in a fire station with diesel fumes. I have my ice machines in a shop where they start diesel engines all the time. My the doors don't close, the plumbing vents. You know, you know, you just go on and on and. Uh, and and honestly, when I first started the fire service, uh, we washed our turnouts in the same washing machine that we washed our station clothes. We had a dish or just a regular washer instead of an extractor. So I'm saying all this stuff and, and it seemed to go through deaf ears. And so at the point where I, I finally uh, got the result. And so he he has like oh, six months. Or I don't know what it was anymore, but he has a certain amount of time where he has to get back his report. And so he gives back his report. It's denied. He said it was genetic. So um, oh, he did. Uh, he did genome testing in that interview as well. He actually let me let me back up. He said it was um, family history, or and I said, well, my family doesn't have history of that. And so the the interesting thing is, I was going through UCSD at this time, and they offered me genetic testing, and and I said, and they gave me two choices. They go. This, this one, usually the insurance takes, and uh, it's the cheap one, and it gives us a baseline. This one is a huge one that we don't even understand some of the findings, and usually insurances don't approve this, but which one do you want to do? And I said, let's do the the, the hardcore one. And I was lucky because my insurance covered it. And it came back, and it said it was not genetic. It, was, it wasn't hereditary. It wasn't genetic. That And the, the genetic person actually said, it's due to your lifetime exposure is why you have this. So we give that information back to that doctor. And uh, you know what his response was? That test showed some inconclusive findings, which we can't either deny or or accept of not being genetic. And so now I wish I went with the, the cheap test because I'm like, well, I just stabbed myself in the foot. I, I thought this was better for me and my family to like, okay, let's, let's get a foundation. And now it's, oh, okay, well... Yeah, there was some inconclusive test because they don't even understand what it's about. But um, everything that that this test for it is, says no. And there's some other things that I, I learned that they diagnosed me with. It was called polyposis. And you have a thing in the back of your eye that's very, very common. I went to an eye doctor, had it looked at, and he goes, you don't have it. And I can't remember the exact term. And so there was all these things I'm like, you're saying I have this. Here's the findings that says I don't have this. And it turned into, oh, I'm sorry, it's different. And so it went all the way to, it was going to go to Superior Court. And then um, I had the I had um, the California Professional Firefighters uh, Union go to a city council member and, and talk on my behalf um, and more just more about cancer presumption in general, which spurred some um, some conversation. And uh, I was lucky enough at that point to uh, to have my claim accepted. And so I did get my claim accepted. And I don't know what the, the finding is now, but I I was told to submit my medical bills. And so the one thing, and I maybe this is a law thing and maybe it's just they're fighting, but whenever you don't pay in a certain amount of time, like you're penalized. And my claim went over that. So I think that's what the description is now is like, 
all right, well, you didn't get your, your settlement when you were supposed to. So there's this kind of fine. And so now it's back and forth on, on who's on the hook for that. Or if it's even, if it's even possible to like, it's just a law thing right now. And so, I mean, I, I did um, get it accepted. So I have to be thankful for that. And my city did support me. Um, the, I think the verdict did come around five years after the fact of just constant evaluations, doctor's appointments, lawyers, rebuttaling arguments. And then the fact that it was going to go to um, court. And at that point, um, yeah. It, at one point, my lawyer said, he told me, he goes, you're going all the way to the top because um, both sides, this is case law. This is going to set case law. And uh, I kind of regret that it didn't because I, sh- I think I could have won and it would have been nice to have the case law go for us. But in the long run, my lawyers, when it, when it finally got accepted, he said, no, like we have to do what's best for you. So accept the claim. We're, we're good. Totally different kind of um, level of, of health what I'm about to say, but I um, tore my groin in Orange County, the Orlando area. And I worked there and uh, the initial diagnosis was uh, hernia. And I'm very lean, so when the guy looked at it, he just figured, okay, that kind of divot is is some sort of prolapse, but it wasn't. It was just my anatomy, ultimately. But anyway, I went in um, to, I think, was it a second opinion? Yeah, because the first one I had, it was, again, the person was just awful. Like you said, just someone that you're like, how are you even practicing? So I had this second opinion, but again, it was chosen by them. It wasn't um, someone that I knew, like, I want to see this person, which is what I ended up doing with my knees when I when I tore my meniscus I'm like we're not playing this this is the person I want and it was you know someone that I knew at my gym and it was amazing but I'll never forget this I'm told to be at the you know let's say nine o'clock whatever it was and I get there and it's in this kind of very weird looking building and I go to the top and I go open the door and it's locked and I'm like well what the hell's going on here so anyway I kind of sit there for a bit I think I was a few minutes early and so we're, let's say, five stories up, looking down about th- three stories at the top of the parking garage. I see this car kind of flying up. This guy jumps out of his car, throws on a white coat, runs you know, this way. I'm like, tell me that's not my fucking doctor. Sure as shit, opens it up. And it may as well have been a movie set because no one was in there. This dude comes in, whacks on a, pla- a rubber glove, sticks his fingers in my junk, says, yeah, it's not a hernia, and then leaves again and I, and this is the thing it's like there with some some of these physicians that work for workman's comp they work for workman's comp and was it ultimately was that diagnosis wrong it wasn't but i wanted an mri because i kept getting told you know this is a hernia it's not a hernia I'm like okay well now we're playing fucking guessing games can you do some imaging so we can actually tell because i need to go back to work but you know that's and then i had that even when i uh hurt my back I was sent to, you know, a local clinic and was basically ordered by this PA, you're going to take these meds and we're going to talk about surgery. And I'm like, the fuck we are. And so I ended up getting a, you know, a second person and then finding ultimately it was my, my doctor um, and going down the PT route and never having surgery and not needing meds. And it took a long freaking time and it sucked. But, you know, I took control of my own path of healing and ultimately that was right. But like we said before, we're groomed to listen to the person in the white coat with the Seth skirt around their neck. But when you get into these situations and you hear 
you know, yours isn't so much a horror story, but I've heard horror stories. We have to be really careful who is put in front of us masquerading as a medical expert, because more often than not, if they are placed in front of us, they're probably not a medical expert. They're just the person that they wanted you to see. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. It's uh, and you know through the whole path, you know, and I think it goes back to even when I was talking about it, like being a, a strong advocate for yourself is is what you have to be. And and uh, sometimes you, you have to fight, but there there's some you definitely have to research things. And uh, I remember that was what I was so fortunate about is um, I was out of the game when 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 I was going through everything. My whole uh, my whole goal was I want to live. And uh, I have two kids. Uh, they were they were teenage. My daughter was in college at the point. My son was young. He was probably thirteen. I think he was eighth grade. And and my goal was like I I cannot leave now. Like this is this is I need to be here with my family. And and the thought of not being with your family is just like doctor, do whatever you need to. You're the expert to save my life. And uh, I had my wife that was the same way, but she's like, whoa, hold the horses. Like this to see what else are the options. And she was able to really like slow things down. And uh, man, if I didn't have that, I think I, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to have some good care, but on the same token, there was times where she made where I ended up going to UCSD. If I would have went that path with the other physician might not have such a happy story right now. And uh, so um, I was very fortunate in that aspect. And, and luckily maybe I wasn't the best advocate for myself because I was just mentally not there, but I had someone there for me and uh, I couldn't have done it without her. Beautiful. Well, when did you return back to work? Um, I believe, so I believe I went back to work August 1st, 2016. So it wasn't quite a year I was off. There's a lot of people that when they get hurt, for example, they're kind of racing back to work, sometimes too soon. But on the flip side, there's also that mentality where you know, like you said, there's almost a chasing of, of medical retirement. But I think I've, to be completely honest, as you said, some people get to sleep in their own bed every night next to their wife or husband with their kids. And they're like, oh, this is actually really nice. I don't know. You know, so there's there's kind of a chase in that way as well. But it's admirable people that had that, that were home and then, you know, are determined to go back. So how were you received? And then what were the years after like that for you? So um, it's funny you say that because I often look back at that time off is uh, one of the most horrific times in my life, but one of the best times in my life. I spent so much time with my family. I never missed my son's baseball game. He was a baseball guy. Yeah, his problem. He should have played hockey, but he, I'm just kidding. He was, <laughs> his mom didn't want him to play hockey. She wanted him to keep it, keep his teeth. But uh, he he played baseball, and and so I got to witness a lot of things in that time off, and so. Going back to work, I was a little concerned, like, man, this is this has been nice to be with my family, watch my son grow up, be there for my wife every day, even though she was more there for me than I was her. But I, I spent time with my family. It was really important to me. Um, but I was really excited to go back to work because I, I really do love my job. Um, and there's been times in my career where people might not realize it because I told you I did struggle. There were some times where I loved my job, but I hated my job at the same time. And so it, I came back to work and I was really excited. Um, I was excited because I had the support of the people I worked with. Um, our zone is a great zone. We're, we're very tight knit. And, and so like Anaheim, you guys had your North net type area. Like, uh, and so we're called Heartland and we had El Cajon, 
couple cities around the Mesa, all of that, um, Lakeside. And so when I came back, there was um, a zone of people. And so back up a little bit, when I got diagnosed for cancer, a week before I had surgery, there was a party that was at my, uh, up in Temecula. And everyone was just coming up to like, hey, man, like, we're here for you. And it was at a bar. And uh, I remember this. This was the coolest thing ever. Um, it was it was Santee people that came up, but my fire chief that retired, and he's the chief of another department, his name's Chief Bull. He calls me up and he goes, Hey David, I'm coming to the the, uh, the thing, and I'd like to bring this other this other chief, Ken Kremensky. And in my mind, these two are legends in, in San Diego County. They're just the the fire chief that everyone respects. They're the they're the guys that are are just just solid and they've been solid their whole lives. And they came up. To, to visit me. And I thought it was really neat. So coming back to work, I had that support of not only like my, my group, but there was people around me that cared for me. There was departments when they found out I would get messages from them. And so when I came back and we're training at the tower for months, I got hugs from people just coming up going, man, I'm so glad you're coming back. And, and uh, it was truly a, an awesome experience. But the sad thing is, is there was also the experience where I came back is not so happy for everything that's happened. And so it, it was really a struggle. Um, I came back and was alone intimidated because, you know, you think you don't forget stuff, but I, I'm sitting there going, oh man, if I went on a wildland fire today, I've got to, I got to get this radio channel with this tone and this, this. And I'm, and uh, so there's almost like, man, I, I need to be retrained when I come back to work. So there was that level and my, my disappointment and certain things that have happened and then, but there was also the joy of being back. And so one of my good friends, Aaron, uh, when I came back, he didn't tell me, but he set up a taco party. And so they had a, a person come in the fire station and have tacos and all the families were invited. So my first day back at work and my wife knew about this and I didn't is I show up and we go down to one of our stations and we've got people off duty, families off duty all over there for the taco party to welcome me back to work. And so uh, stuff like that was just something I can never, um, I can never explain how happy it made me and how proud it made me to be with a group. And so there, there was, it was, it was good and it was bad. I, I, that's the best way I could, I could put it. So we're getting to two hours now. I want to be mindful of your time. Before I let you go, is there anything that you want to impart to, you know, obviously a lot of firefighters, cops, um, paramedics, et cetera, listening to this, um, whether it's, you know, something you've gleaned from this experience or, or warning signs or anything else that you want to tell them before we close up? My big thing is, is uh, no matter um, what you face, uh, like if you, if there's a battle to be had, Face it early. I wish I would have done that with my cancer. Uh, I didn't face it early. And that goes with everything in the fire service. If you have mental health issues, face it early. It's easier to fix it before it gets out of hand. Um, I've kind of alluded to it. I, I definitely had some, some mental things that went on when I came back to work. And uh, I didn't face that either. And uh, I never really got help. I, I went to get help. Uh, and then it just didn't work out because it was, hey, make an appointment, do this. And then COVID hit and then things were kind of off. And, and, uh, so in a way I, I, I hope I fixed myself, but it was a lot harder road fixing myself than to going and get help. So whenever you see a problem in the, in any service you are, fix yourself and, and find it early. And, and we preach that to people. Like we go to, we go to a person on 911 and we're like, 
hey, your blood pressure is 210 over 180. Let's go fix it before you have a stroke. Well, same thing. Fix yourself before it gets out of hand. Well, like you said, you alluded to it. Just before I let you go, what was the, the darkest place you found yourself in? And then what have been some of the tools that have worked for you along this kind of long path to trying to figure out how to navigate that? My my darkest time was probably right right before um, before the case was was settled. Um, I'd been back to work for quite a while. Everything kind of returns back to normal, and you're still like I'm still fighting this thing. I felt alone. I felt like um, nobody cared, and it was a real dark area for me. And uh, and I'm sure I showed it at work. Um, don't know if it was true, but I was told by some of my chief officers like. People don't like working with you. I get complaints every day about you. Um, no one ever told me that. Um, but you know what? If it happened, I'm, I'm not here to say it didn't. Um, and and I did. I wasn't a happy person. I loved the job. I would do whatever I had to. And 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 I felt like I was doing it. But I think sometimes you don't realize what you're doing. So that was my, my darkest time. And I think the thing that helped me out the most is just I think that that thing where I told you that sometimes your your dreams, your values don't meet your dreams. And so that was one of the big things that have stuck in me my whole life is like, I'm going to, my dreams are one thing, but my values are more important to me. So if I stick with my values, then I'll, I'll find happiness. And so through doing that, and like I said, I, I did a lot of self-help books. I, I, I did a lot of things where it just, it took me to do it and it took me longer. And like I said, um, probably the wrong path to go. And, and I wish I would have saw it help out probably sooner. Well, again, I appreciate not only your perspective on that particular topic, but you coming on, on telling your story. I mean, I've had, you know, people that have overcome cancer on here. And I had people like Amy, who I interviewed and six weeks later, she was dead, you know? So this is an extremely important conversation. As you mentioned, when we were earlier in our career, heart disease was the number one thing that killed us then you start learning actually that cancer is now here we are and it's suicide you know doubling the line of duty death rates at the moment so the, the bottom line is there's lots of things and i always say that nothing kills firefighters it's everything that kills firefighters so you know the fact that we've got to hear your journey the highs and lows maybe learning some things you know about having the courage to face things early learning about finding your own you know medical professional that you trust maybe anticipating some of the legal stuff it's been an invaluable conversation so i want to thank you so so much for coming on the show today i appreciate it. it's my honor like i said i've listened to your podcast um and uh, you have high caliber guests so to even be here speaking with you is truly an honor and uh, and the and the other thing is you're doing so much for all the community so thank you 